You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week, we caught up with Luke Weirty, the owner of the new Melbourne-based bar, Birdie, as well as one of the key figures behind the 23rd best bar in the world 2018, Operation Dagger. Michele and Luke chat about Birdie, Operation Dagger, Melbourne, and what it's like to be pushing the boundary of what defines a bar and a cocktail. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. Hi, I'm Luke Weirty. I'm the owner of the new to open, I shouldn't say new to open. Oh, the soon to open uh, <laughs> Birdie in Melbourne. Thank you for finding the time uh, to sit down with us. Uh, it's great to have you over. Thanks for having me. Um, Melbourne is such an awesome city. It's really cool. Uh, it's a very easy, I always say it's an easy city to live in. It's uh, especially after traveling the world, you know, over the last, say, 10, 15 years with my job. Uh, it's 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 become home for me. It's not, it, it actually, I wasn't born here. Um, I'm sort of uh, from a, a small town up north, but uh, coming back to Melbourne now, it's, it's, it's home. It's really cool. I noticed that the quality of ingredients here is fantastic. Uh, I've tried mm. some of the restaurants and the produce is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's really cool. Australia in general, we've got amazing produce um, from, you know, fruit and vegetables to seaweed, uh, seafood, seafood, not seaweed, although we do have good <laughs> seaweed. Um, Does seaweed classify as seafood? Ah, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> not for me, though. You might have to ask a horticulturist or something. Um but yeah, even like down to the all the native indigenous stuff that we've got growing here is is, is really cool. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you, literally doesn't grow anywhere in the world, so it's it's quite a special place. You're about to open a bar here in Melbourne. I think yep. you've been working it for quite a while. Uh, however, um, we all know you for Operation Dagger, but it was such a radical concept. I mean, at least for for Singapore at the time. What I've always been curious is uh, how did you get to open that, and where did you come up with the idea for Operation Dagger? Um, I guess Operation Dagger was probably not, it wasn't one idea that really came to fruition. It was probably the uh, amalgamation of, you know, five, six, seven, eight different ideas over the course of a few different years. But um, I guess uh, I had the opportunity to go to Singapore through Ryan Clift from Tipling Club, the head chef and owner there. And um, I met him. I think it was back in 2009, working a little bit at Tipling Club. Fast forward to, I think it was 2013 we opened. Um, Ryan sort of reached out to me and sort of found out that I was, you know, leaving my bar in uh, the place that I was working in Melbourne and I wanted to do something different. And long story short, he introduced me to my business partners for Operation Dagger Um and yeah, we, I just went over and to be honest, there was a little bit of like luck involved. Like this was before the explosion of bars in Singapore. So we got very lucky in that sense as well. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, we wanted to just open something that was different. And I guess Singapore for me at that point in time was like really ready for something to come in and do something completely different. There was established bars like, you know, 28 Hong Kong Street that had really laid the groundwork. And and I have to mention Tipling Club as well. You know, Tipling Club are very progressive and were, you know, back in 2009. But Singapore, in a lot of ways, probably wasn't ready for that yet. You mm-hmm. know, the scene had to catch up. And, you know, now 10 years later, I think that probably shows you how progressive Tipling Club was because 10 years later, Singapore's finally caught up to it. 
So it's it's quite a statement. So I always have to say, Timberland Club, you know, laid that foundation, and then yeah, it was it enabled us to, you know, it was a lot easier for us to go in and 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 do something that was probably a bit of a risk. Um, would have been a lot more of a risk a few years before that. What were you working in Melbourne? So I was at a, a bar called Derelm, um for I was there for about five years, and yeah. That was kind of at back then. Uh, it's closed now. Back then, that was seen as like one of the most progressive bars in the world, um, definitely for Melbourne. And uh, that was kind of that bar introduced me to sort of looking at things a little bit differently, I guess. And so um, before that, I was working in a lot of like just restaurant bars in my hometown, and um, it was I was only learning what I was teaching myself, I guess. Okay. Um, and so that was why I came to Melbourne back then um, was basically I literally Googled Australia's best bar and that came up and, <laughs> yeah, really? uh, because I got to a point where I was like I, I wasn't learning anything. So I was like I have to go somewhere where there's everyone is like much better than me and that's what I did. And then within like a year or two, I was the head bartender and um, it was really cool for me to be in an environment where I was learning something all the time and I think. I really thrive in an environment like that. And yeah, and the rest is history, I guess. I've moved on from there and then Singapore and now back home. What made you think, what made you fall in love with hospitality or decide that this was your career path? There's uh, one thing actually that I, I get asked this question all the time and it, it is actually one thing that I really love about it. And I think it's one of the only industries where you can make something physically with your hands and you give it to a customer and you instantly get that gratification. You instantly see the effect. You instantly see the joy it brings someone. And I think there's not many industries in the world that you get that instant gratification. Mm. So for me, that was like really cool. Like the creative side of it is what I really enjoy, but you know, also that instant gratification. And it's something that I've missed over the last couple of years, not being behind the bar so much actually. So I'm actually looking forward to being back in Melbourne behind the bar all the time because you get that instant gratification. You know, at the moment in the last couple of years with Singapore, um, you know, I'm not behind the bar all the time. So I have to really make sure I'm communicating with my team all the time on do people like this drink, do they not, you know, because Sometimes I think, oh, maybe I'm getting a bit too crazy. Maybe people are going to hate it. And I have to say, you know, do people like it? Because I, I don't know. I'm not in the bar every night. So, yeah, that's the one thing I love about bartending. So how did you go about opening Operation Dagger? Um, so Because first of all, it's a completely different country. So. Yeah, which was a huge challenge. Um, I had an introduction to Singapore back in 2009 with Tipton Club and, and working with Ryan. Um, so I, I knew a little bit of what to expect, but even in saying that, it was it was very challenging. It was very hard. I'm not going to uh, sugarcoat it at all. <laughs> um, I, I've actually, you know, I say all the time now that now that I've opened a bar in Singapore, um, I feel like I can open a bar anywhere. Anywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but in saying that, Singapore's really changed a lot as well in the last five years. So I think a lot of the challenges that I faced back then aren't really challenges anymore. But what I mean, that's have? the price to pay to to be one of the first Absolutely. people opening in, in these areas. So. so what were the challenges that you described? Um, the biggest one I would say would be, uh, it, it was just the culture. And I'm not talking about, you know, the culture of the country in terms of 
we're in Asia, so people eat different food and that sort of thing. Uh-huh. But it's, it was more like the culture around hospitality wasn't established in Singapore. So to try and convince you know young people in Singapore that hospitality and, and bartending is like a, a job worth their time was quite a challenge because, you know, and this is something that's changed a lot. And I'd like to think Operation Dagger has, has contributed to the changing of this culture because I think the younger guys can see, oh, actually, I can work for, you know, these bars and then they're recognized on these lists, like the 50 best bars and that sort of thing. And there's that, like I talk about that instant gratification, you know, uh-huh. they're getting gratification themselves. Whereas I think before that, there was just a lot of, you know, I don't want to say substandard bars, but bars that, that that weren't really teaching them anything. They weren't really doing anything other than, you know, trying to make money for the owner of the bar, you know. So I think there was that stigma around bartending and working in the service industry was seen as like a bad thing. So it was quite hard to get the right people in, in Singapore. And again, like I got very lucky. I've had some really great staff in, in Singapore. I still do. Um, one staff member in particular, Sasha, who's been with me since we opened and she's still there. She's, she's the head bartender there now. Um, she started with us when she was 19, you know, back then, even talking about her personal experience, like she actually, I don't know if she likes me talking about this too much, but, um, you know, her own father, you know, really didn't like the fact that she was working in the service industry and, and, and said, you know, I don't, I don't want you to do this and, and really made life hard for her at that point in time. But she stuck with it and now her parents come to the bar and they're really proud of her. So okay. that, I guess that's sort of a, a, an example of where the, the mentality, the mindset and the culture was and it's changed so much. Um, so, yeah, that, that was a big challenge uh, for me because I've more or less grown up in the, this industry. So I started out washing dishes for kitchens and restaurants and then working my way up. And for someone that, you know, a younger guy or girl coming to me saying, well, no, I'm too good for this. I, or, you know, I don't want to do this job. I don't want to, I want to only learn the top end of the scale. I don't want to have to do the hard work. That doesn't sit very well with someone like me, you know. So you can imagine there was a <laughs> some frustrating times there. But uh, I think we we stuck to our guns. We wanted to do something different, and and we delivered that. And I think our staff really welcomed that in the end. How did you try? So what were the things that you did in order to retain staff? Uh, a big one for me was uh, a big one that I think made a huge difference was myself and and my wife Aki. We were in the bar working shifts every single day. You know, we weren't the traditional bar owners um, where we were sitting at home just watching the the P and L report. We were the, in there every day. Um, you know, I would I would take out the bins, I would mop the floors, I would do the cash up, I would make the drinks, because I wanted to set an example of that we're all working together as a team. I think that really was something that I was very conscious about, and it's something that I'm just like. Uh, I'm very passionate about myself. I feel like the, the best way to lead is by example. So, you know, you open up the avenue for them to learn off you as well. You're, you're there when things go wrong. You're there when, when things go right. You're there at the end of the shift having a beer or, you know, that's when everyone's guard is let down and, you know, they can ask you questions and it's a little bit more of a real interaction rather than that boss-worker mm-hmm. relationship. Um but it was, it was something that I think uh, especially like local Singaporeans, they 
found it hard to relate. You know, even just calling me boss, I hate people calling me oh, boss. Oh, I hate it too, yeah. <laughs> but it's such a big thing in that, is it? It yeah. is, especially in, in, in Asian culture. It was, um, so that was one thing instantly. I was like, you know, don't call me boss. My name's Luke. I'll call you by your name. And it was something that it, there was. we had to shift the culture a little bit. Um, it, and we said it a, a few times, like down in Operation Dagger, we were like, this isn't anywhere. It's it's Operation Dagger. It's its own place in itself. It's not Singapore. It's not Australia. It's where it, it's it's escape from the rest of the world because that's what we wanted the bar to be for customers as well. But I also also wanted it to be for for staff. And once they clicked into that mentality and and they got that, it was really cool to see them respond to that. And it was yeah, the way they were down in Operation Dagger were, was completely different to how they felt like they needed to portray themselves on the outside world. Because Singapore is a very strict society in a lot of ways. And I think it's quite suppressive in a lot of ways, to be honest. Um, whereas I think we offered a, a bit of an escape from that and they, they really responded well to it. I just think that also touching on that is that, as you said, you've got this uh, figure, which is like the boss or owner or manager or whatever. Mm. And then you know, staff are almost like afraid to talk to this person, right? Mm. Or you make it like, but then this creates this avenue whereby as an owner or a manager, you get very little feedback from your team. And then exactly, you've got yeah. people that end up having issues that they can never. Oh, totally. Like the communication is the key to any successful business or any successful, not even just business. You know, if you just talk about teams, communication is a, is a key. Even if you talk about, I always do a lot of um, my my degree in, in university is psychology. So I'm always sort of, I'm very interested in the mm. psychology behind uh, teamwork and that sort of thing and group dynamics. And I always make similar sort of comparisons to, you know, sports teams. You know, if you have a, a, a football team, say, that doesn't talk to each other on the field, there's, it, it's, and they're Doomed playing. for failure, yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. So it's the same thing in a bar, you know, you have to have that. Uh, communication and more importantly just open up those avenues for communication talking about uh, singapore when you joined uh, you mentioned that there were a few bars that like sort of paved the road uh, for other bars like Mm -hmm. yours to to succeed however i'm I'm sure there was still a genuine lack of training in hospitality how did you try to overcome that gap given the fact that some of the techniques that you use in your bar are quite especially at the time they were quite forward yeah yeah uh, to be honest, that's the, that was the easy part because we were doing things so different. People didn't really have a basis for comparison or because it was so different, we were starting their training day one. You know what I mean? So like for me, I actually prefer it that way. For, so I, I prefer training people that have zero experience because, you know, quite often if you've worked in five or six bars all around the world and that sort of thing, sometimes you might develop well, you first might develop some bad habits that, you know, you don't really, that are really hard to get rid of. Um, But then also, you know, let's say talking about using these modern gadgets like uh, rotary evaporators, that sort of thing, there's there's different ways to use them. And so if you've learnt one way, then it's a lot harder to teach another. Whereas, you know, with, with the guys at Dagger, you know, they were very fresh, very young, and they were just willing to learn. So it was super easy, actually. Um, to train new things because it was like okay this is a traditional bar and this is what that looks like but we're doing something over here that's completely different from that 
so all you need to do is focus on 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 this and um obviously you know we still wanted to give classic training and knowledge because i th- I, I believe it's important to know that um but there was bars like, you know, 28 Hong Kong Street that were doing that so well, it didn't make sense for me to do that. So it opened up the door to do something really different. So, yeah, training-wise, it, that actually was, was the easy part. And talking about the Operation Dagger uh, menu itself, uh, I think one of the very curious bits is the natural wine section. Have you had that from the very beginning? Uh, more or less, yeah, we... We were fermenting things right from the start, but we didn't necessarily have a section of the menu. Uh, oh, no, actually we did. Yeah, we did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was just we had uh, – this is testing my memory now. <laughs> going back to the first menu, I think there was like maybe five or six drinks, uh, like cocktails, mixed drinks, and then we had a section of the menu that was called house brew. That's right. So we had um, – different things like fer- that we were playing around fermentation-wise. So I think the first thing that we started playing around was mead. So we're getting some local honey and then fermenting that. And that was something that Aki, my wife, took as her own personal project. And I think that that first mead that we fermented, we sold out of it within two months. But that first mead that we fermented, we, we're still trying to chase that result. Oh, really? I yeah, did, yeah, You cannot? Nah, for whatever reason, it's ne- it's never been as good. I mean, it's still been good, but the first mead that she did was, uh, it was amazing. It had the complexity of like uh, some amazing uh, French wines like you get from, you know, the region of uh, Jura, those oxidized sort of style wines that was really complex, nutty, and still had acidity. It was amazing. You can't I, get I, I wish I still had a bottle of it. <laughs> it's quite frustrating, but beautiful at the same time. But that section of the menu fermenting came actually from us being in Singapore, and it actually came from a restriction. When I went back to Singapore, because I was used to the produce uh, and the seasons rotating all the time in Melbourne, I went to Singapore, and all of a sudden that was taken away from me. You know, there's one... One frustration of mine with Singapore is always has always been that there's nothing really grown in Singapore. It's all for, all imported. Even if it's grown, you know, close by to Malaysia, it's still you know technically imported, yeah. imported mm-hmm. right? Um, and the seasons, there's no seasons in Singapore. It's there's one season and it's hot <laughs> and humid. <laughs> yeah, humid. And uh, so we kind of, instead of looking at that as a restriction, we try to use that as our uh, to our advantage. So. Um, the menus became a little bit more free-flowing. You know, we weren't restricted by the season, so we could get anything we wanted imported from anywhere. But then I wanted to do something that was still, you know, a little bit more localised and made by us. So that's when I started looking into fermentation. Um, And then the mead was the first thing that really we looked at. And Singapore actually has the perfect climate for fermentation because it's steady temperature all the time so especially down where we've got the little fermentation bank in under the stairs in uh in operation dagger it's like a consistent you know 20 degrees uh, all year oh, round. that's awesome so it's, it's just perfect for for fermenting so yeah it kind of came from that so talking about the menu operation dagger how did you drive uh, creativity um, so it's one thing that we've we've done since we opened we have for the staff uh, one day a week where we have a a creative session so it's basically a dedicated uh two hours before we open the bar um that the guys can focus on anything they want um if they want to sit down and read a book they can if they want to 
work on a drink that they've been working on, that's the time to do it. Um, and that, for me, is something that I'll carry on to Birdie in Melbourne. Um, it was always really important for me as a bartender when I was learning was having a dedicated time to focus on something because otherwise, when do you find time? And it, and quite often, it, it, it just is that, you know, whenever you find time, so it's like you will make a customer a drink and then you go back to working on your drink, you know. And I found I, I I find that it really it's one of my pet hates when I go to a bar and there's a bartender in the bar not necessarily serving the guests. He's working on a new drink he's coming well, up okay, with yeah. or sometimes it's a drink for a competition or whatever. It's like that to me just says, you know, you're disorganized. You know, service is for service. And then so that's why we set aside this time and we call it a creative session. So they're not focusing on anything else. It's just 100% creativity i think to be creative you have to also be very organized as well um so yeah there's a set time for prep there's a set time for service and there's a set time for developing new drinks and then outside of that i mean i i don't myself i don't need any real motivation to sort of come up with new things because it's it's just what i love to do so um everyone's different you know some people really need that sort of push and motivation and you know some of my staff would would ask me a lot of questions and want me to be really involved. Other staff, you know, they would just be happy going on their own. Other staff really respond well to maybe going outside of the bar and, you know, seeing a new process like going to visit a bakery or a brewery or, you know, doing off-site things like that. Um, and when we've had like people like Matt Wiley and Alex Cretenia come down and do like like-minded creatures at the first one that we did in, in Singapore, I know that, a lot of the staff really found that like amazing to like work right close with those guys. Um, some people aren't, to be honest, some people aren't interested in creativity. You know, some people are very, you know, linear and want to focus a little bit more on operations and maybe they want to f- focus more on the, the human side of things and focus on guests and service and that sort of thing. That's great too. You know, it's, I think to be a bartender at the moment, there's a lot of pressure to be like really creative, whereas you don't have to be you know that shouldn't be your one and only focus you know if you just like serving people you know making people happy you know that's a good enough reason as well absolutely and it's a skill as well mm. and and it also goes down to you know num- some people are really good with numbers i'm i'm terrible with numbers so <laughs> i love it when someone comes along and says yeah i just love doing a spreadsheet you know <laughs> they have my they're great <laughs> yeah <laughs> but some people really love it and you know i think i always try and encourage I think creativity goes, you know, it's multifaceted. So you can be creative with a spreadsheet as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I try and encourage whatever avenue they want to be creative with, you know, I'll try and encourage that. But, um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that if you dedicate time for creativity and putting down ideas on pieces of paper, mm. not 100% of the ideas mm. are uh, relevant or compatible with what you're doing in that specific stage no. of your career. So how do you keep people motivated? Because if you get a couple of ideas bounced back every mm. now and then, it must, must be quite painful for a member of staff to deal with it, right? Yeah, I th- my big one is as long as it's recorded, I think there'll always be a time for it, you know. And, and I'll often say to people, uh, you know, I've had ideas that I just, you know, I'm working on for maybe two or three years. Um I record it up until a certain point and that's the, the strength of recording it is you can then put it away and you can forget about it because it's recorded. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so you can go back to that at any point and you can pick up where you left off. If you don't record it, then you're going to forget it. Well, I know I will, you know, and then all that work that you've already put into it is just lost. So I always encourage people to be like, okay, if you've got five or six ideas, that's great. You know, write them all down, but then choose to work on one until you maybe you'll get to a, a, a fork in the road and you don't really know which way you want to go. Don't rush it, you know, put it away, sleep on it, sleep on it for a week, a month, a year, and then come back to it. And then that way the the ideas and the creativity is going to be a lot more organic rather than forced. I think a lot of the time there's, you know, some people try and force an idea too much and it ends up developing into something that was really far removed from their original idea. Whereas this way, it's a lot more sort of not as much pressure. Talking a bit more about uh, human from human perspective, how was it to work with your wife? Because uh, a lot of people hate it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> easy, easy for me. I can honestly say, um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm worried that she'll hear this. And uh, no, super easy. Uh, Aki and I are very similar, but also very different at the same time. And I think we we know each other's strengths and weaknesses too well. <laughs> I mean. For example, something like this, uh, you know, doing a podcast, that's Aki's worst nightmare. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, So in terms of running a business, you know, uh, not just Operation Dagger, but any brand, a lot of the time, you know, needs a face to the brand and needs someone that, you know, the the spotlight is on. And, you know, Aki was always quite happy for me to be that person. Um, There was one frustration of mine that I always had that she didn't, she never gets the credit that she deserves. And so I'm always, that's why I'm always bringing her up. If I've ever got the opportunity, I'll bring her name up because, yeah, she uh, she's very talented in terms of of everything in terms of food and drink. But, yeah, she just doesn't like the, the spotlight, so it's kind of she shies away from that. But it's perfect for us, so I'll do that sort of thing. And then she'll be, she's happy to be behind the scenes working on, on this, that, the other. Um, because she was very task-minded, that enabled me to spend a little bit more time with staff, spend a, min- a little bit more time with guests. Um, otherwise, I'll probably, especially in the opening days, I would have been stuck just doing prep and all the operational side of things that you know she took care of. And yeah, it's so it's easy. It it works really well. But I'm under no disillusion that we're very lucky. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. uh, I. A lot, I get asked that question a lot because you know, especially people that are married, they're just like, how do you do that? Like, you know, I think a lot of people enjoy their job because it's an escape from their wife or something like no, that. No, but yeah, it also gives you <laughs> more partner. things to talk about when you go home, right? And like, yeah. I don't know, it's I, I find it that if you spend the 24-7 with the same person, after a while you kind of run out of things to talk about, right? I don't know. Yeah, that, I mean, uh, yeah, we'd never really had that. I think the, the key, I think with Aki and I, we... We're comfortable with being, you know, in the same room and being silent. Um, uh-huh. mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's never been an issue. We have the same interests, but at the same time, we've got, you know, enough things on our own that we're interested mm-hmm. in. And, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's, put it this way, it's never really been something that we've had to really work hard at. It's and then always, it's, if it's natural, it's perfect, is Exactly, it? yeah. So, no, it's... It, it, it's it's great and i'm actually really looking forward to when we open in melbourne we're actually going to be working together again which is which is great um we're just working out the logistics of that trying to get childcare and everything for Bronnie first but uh, <laughs> i'm sure it'll work out so let's talk about uh south uh, africa mm, yeah how did that come about amazing uh 
literally came from uh, just a guy that came to the bar and, and really loved Operation Dagger. Um, he owned a bar in South Africa already and had a new space and wanted to open something and sort of floated the idea to me. And it was just sort of perfect timing for me that uh, Dagger was established. I had a really good, strong team in there. I wasn't so much needed on a day-to-day basis to be there all the time. So uh, hold on, uh, just how many, after how many years of Dagger being open did this opportunity come up? This was after two years. Okay. Yeah. That's when we started like looking at, both Aki and I started the conversation of coming back home and, and opening a bar. Um, because yeah, Dagger was, you know, a little bit more self-sustainable. Um, so we're already thinking that and we sort of started putting that concept in, in motion and, and what eventually became Birdie. But then the opportunity with South Africa came about and it was just a really cool opportunity. First of all, I'd never been to South Africa. So a lot of people I say this to and they're like, are you crazy? You decided to open a bar and you'd never been there before. <laughs> and, and yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I did. It's, uh, it was a pretty big risk. We, my first time in South Africa was, you know, going to open the bar like for opening week. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but I kind of enjoyed that. Uh, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was fun. It was, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a risk, but, um, you know, it was a lot of things that I loved about it. But the biggest thing was we went back there and all of a sudden there was a familiarity about the place in terms of I was back having seasons and local produce and being working around, you know, different chefs and, and bartenders and baristas that all had the same interest. And there's a really cool, young, energetic, vibrant hospitality scene in Cape Town especially. And it actually just fueled the fire to come back home and, and open a bar back in Melbourne as well. So um, yeah, it was really cool. It was only, um, unfortunately, we sort of had to call it quits after a year um, because financially it just wasn't making any sense for mm-hmm. us anymore, mainly due to economic reasons. Um, you know, the economy in, in South Africa isn't great. Um, I think by the time we converted all the profits from the first year of trade, we we, we took the staff out to dinner and then that was it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a money-making project for me at all. Okay. Um, if I had money myself, I, I would have been able to, you know, personally keep it afloat for a few years, but I just didn't have that money. And if I was going to inject my own personal money more into a place, then I wanted to do that. Yeah, Melbourne. exactly. So I kind of had to make a bit of a grown-up decision there, which was hard at the time because I had a really good, young, loyal team there that I had to, you know, call them on Skype one day and say, hey, guys, I'm sorry, we have to we have to close the bar. It's, uh, you it's actually not... close it? Yeah, yeah. So, well, the bar kept running after I left, um, but the whole team left with me. And then the, the partner that I had with it, he continued to run it for another, I think it was like eight, nine months. But yeah, then it closed. Uh, but now it's actually opened up. One of my really good friends who's a chef, he's actually taken over the space okay, um, and created a, a really cool street food style restaurant called The Commissary. Um, his name's Wesley Randalls. If you're in Cape Town, anyone oh, that's listening, oh go say hi to Wes and Jules that have opened that. And that's in the same space that we were in. So it's, it's, um, I'm glad that at least went to one of my friends. So how do you go about managing different uh, bars simultaneously by not being there? Uh, you have to just have your systems in place, have to be super organized, um, and have systems in place. Uh, 
I've got a more or less a bit of a template that I that I have already with running Operation Dagger. And a lot of it, even though it was a very different bar, you know, we were in all the way over in Cape Town and we were using South African ingredients and, and, and that sort of thing. The core of it and the template was still the same. So I basically more or less, you know, copy and pasted that same template operationally for Operation Dagger to Cape Town. And there was the long-term plan was going to be to rotate the staff between the two because that was going to be the strength because they were essentially two different bars on different sides of the world. But when you stripped everything back, they were all running basically the same way. So then I could interchange staff and it would have been really cool to be able to give, you know, the Singapore guys an experience in Cape Town and, and vice versa, bring some of the South African guys to Singapore. Which we did in the opening, we our opening head bartender we brought to Singapore to sort of work a week at Operation Dagger, and that that was really cool. Um, that's probably my only regret that I did, wasn't able to do that, you know, with the whole team. But yeah, just going back to you know how we did it, it's just you have to be organised and have that structure. I have a set time each week that I Skype with the team, no matter wherever wherever I am in the world. Um, I'll set that Tuesday 4 p.m. call. It's always with Singapore. Um, and then it was always uh, an hour later, it was with South Africa. Um, just to have that FaceTime, sort of face-to-face chat as well. Um, and then every night getting a written report from my guys via email. And then I would, you know, on email quite a lot, I think was the uh, the key. Um, it's, it's just a, it's a painful necessity you have to, focus to or you have to be committed to those communication processes talking about uh, the staff rotation in between departments uh, in between bars is this Mm. something that you were planning to do with birdie as well i'd love to um one thing yes yes and no um what i really am uh, looking forward to with birdie is uh, we want to develop a bit of a training program. So something that's very early, in the early stages, um, I mean, we're not even open yet, but um, it's something that I'm, I really want to install into the bar um, and that's a, a, a training program for, for outside people coming in. We get asked all the time at Dagger, you know, can I come and work there for a week? And it's really hard in Singapore because of the visa restrictions yeah. and it's it's super tough to do that. Um I look at, you know, restaurants around the world and, you know, a restaurant like Noma is a perfect example. You'll have lunch or dinner at Noma and then they'll give you a tour after your meal and you'll go up into the prep area and there'll be 25 chefs shelling peas, you know, and they're all there on like a stagiaire program, you know, they're all there working for free basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're there because they want to learn, right? And so they offer a template where, you know, they come, they get fed, they have accommodation for them. And then it makes sense. In the bartending world, we don't have anything structured like that, you know. So it's something that I'm really trying to work on a program. Um, We're talking to a couple of brands at the moment to try and see if they can help out with it. And it's very much like that, a stagiaire program, very similar to a a restaurant. So people would come, they spend time with us at Birdie, and there would be a set set curriculum. Um, so day one, focusing on foraging. Uh, you know, day two is carbonation. Day three is uh, distillation. Uh, day four is fermentation. Day five, the, you know, it might be just going out to meet with our suppliers. So it's a really structured pro- training program. Uh, and then at the end of it, whether it's a week or ideally I'd love to do it for a month, but obviously that's, that comes logistically a little bit harder yeah. <laughs> for people to take time off their work. Mm. Um 
so yeah and then you know they would go away and you know they would they would have learned a, a lot in that period because that's another thing too when people are saying you know oh can i just come and do a shift at the bar in singapore you know i instantly say to him i was like you know it's not that I don't want you to do that, but to be honest, you're not going to learn anything you know, yeah. in one shift. So I would really love to have this tailored program so I can really invest time into people and, and so they get the most out of it. Um, then in terms of rotating our, our staff into into uh, other bars, um, there's we loosely have an idea for maybe, you know, this is going down in a second, third stage of birdie, you know, to have the concept of birdie lends itself to being anywhere in the world because the whole concept is like a bird flying to a new environment, it adapts. So there's no reason why we can't do a birdie Singapore or a birdie London or a birdie Japan and we adapt that same concept. And then if that happens, then we'll, yeah, I'd definitely love to rotate the staff, but um I might be getting too ahead of myself uh, there. I've got to open. <laughs> What's the yeah, I've got to open guess. first. Uh. <laughs> Last question about the uh, dagger. Um, yep. I think I found very interesting is the name. How did you come up with the name? So Operation Dagger was something that just jumped out at me when I was researching the local area. Um, we wanted to, we didn't want to just come to Singapore and just as foreigners introduced like a really foreign concept uh we wanted to embrace the local culture and embrace the local history um so actually singapore the very clean organized singapore now uh years ago it wasn't so much there was actually a very sort of dark you know dirty sort of history especially around the chinatown area where we are so um it was actually Operation Dagger came from reading uh, some old newspapers. And basically Operation Dagger was in 1956, I believe. And it was an operation or a blitz by the Singapore government and police force to eradicate the areas of like things like opium dens and brothels and that sort of thing. So they went into this area. There was a lot of secret gang societies and that sort of thing. So the police had Operation Dagger and they went in and they got rid of all this and cleaned up the area. So it was kind of cool uh, when I re- read that. Obviously, the you know, Operation Dagger stands out. It's like a very impactful name. But it was kind of cool because it was like, at the time, the, the, the term or the style of a speakeasy bar was very, very popular. But I've always found, I've always been quite conflicted with the term speakeasy because like, you know, for me, it's like, how can you be a speakeasy when you've got a liquor license? You know, it's yeah, quite yeah. A, it's a bit of a gimmick sort of thing. So it was quite funny that Operation Dagger was actually also just as much as I was against speakeasies. Operation Dagger was against the secret clubs and societies as well. And, that was, and so it was kind of a bit of a tongue in cheek that we call ourselves Operation Dagger because we were kind of against, you know, that sort of secret society thing. I mean, we still get called a speakeasy all the time. We uh-huh. don't have a sign and that sort of thing. But I didn't want it to be our main focus. You know, I think it was one thing that I really wanted with Operation Dagger is everything had to have a reason, whether it's an, the the name of the bar or the design of the bar. Or when you get asked the question why, there always has to be an answer for me. How about the logos? Mm. Uh, so that was uh, a more direct influence from one of my favorite artists called Jean-Michel Basquiat. So in a nutshell, uh, he started out as like a graffiti artist in the in the 80s in New York City. He was quite a poor graffiti artist at this time. You know, he spent a lot of time on the streets. 
and he actually used to incorporate what was what's known as hobo code or hobo language in a lot of his artwork and so this hobo code is basically uh, it was a way of communication with people on the streets so if, if you and i were on the street and i found a place where i could get clean water there was a symbol that meant clean water here and then so you came past the next week you see that symbol and you know, yeah, that no, you yeah, get... so yeah, that was kind of incorporating that language. And it was also out of an idea, um, researching one of my favorite chefs called Ferran Adria, um, mm-hmm. with El Bulli. Um, I found it really intriguing that, um, he had a, basically for their mise en place, um, they had, a, an organized system of codes or pitches because all the chefs there working there were all from different parts of the world. So no one actually spoke a common tongue. So actually that's how they organized their mise en place was by code. I really loved that. I thought right, it was so smart. Awesome, yeah. So uh, I sort of started researching code and then that came up and then there was a reference to Jean-Michel Basquiat, which I've got a tattoo in my arm, uh-huh. which I've had for years, the crown, uh, which is something he's famous for with painting on his artworks. And, uh, yeah, so our logo actually means uh, if you if you scare the people that live here, they'll give you things to go away. If you intimidate these people, they'll give you something. Oh, really? Uh, so that was another tongue-in-cheek thing because I found like after working in hospitality for so many years, I think it's quite easy to sometimes think that you're just giving people things to constantly try and make them happy. You know, it was always like, as long as the customer's happy, you give them something. So it was kind of cool. When I read that, I was like, yeah, that's cool. That's that's our logo. Uh, we're always uh, giving people things to make sure they're happy. Oh, that's a cool logo. <laughs> you know, I remember I've seen this uh, seminar of Fernando Adria where he does uh, this orange seminar in Harvard. It's there like saying to people, he's got an orange, right? Yeah. In front of his old classroom of like super smart students. And he's like, Okay, can anyone tell me what this is? And they're all laughing. It's like, no, no, but like they're asking a serious question. What is this? And they're like, oh, it's an orange. I was like, yeah, I can see it's an orange, but what orange is it? Uh, and they're like, oh, that's a Californian orange. Like, I didn't ask you where the orange is from. I've asked you what orange it is. And then he goes on talking about oranges for like two hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, he's, you know, people often say like, if you could like, sit in a room or if you could invite someone for for dinner anyone in the world I, he'd be up the top of my list you know yeah i'd love to uh sit and talk to him for hours i think there's a lot of things uh that he did with el bully and you know the the food world wouldn't be the same without him um so i think bartenders can learn a lot from mm. from him and what he did at el bully not just him actually you know a lot of a lot of chefs um at the top of their game I think years ago there was like a huge divide between chefs and bartenders and, and it was seen as we were doing two different things. And I look at it very differently. I think it's, we're, we're basically doing the same thing. Um, I had a, I met, a sit down and a chat with a, a chef uh, here. His name's Dave Verhill from uh, Embla here in Melbourne, um, an amazing chef. And he was we were sitting down talking about vermouths he he wants to start making some vermouths very sort of like single origin single ingredient vermouths like a a cherry vermouth or that sort of thing and he was sort of asking me about that and i, I was like yeah it's a great idea you know um so it, it's refreshing when you, you find people like that that they're not exactly in the same industry but you know they've got the same ideas i think we're we're doing the same thing but also what I love about our industry at the moment is that I've noticed that uh, things are getting more and more casual. Mm. And I think 
bartending is becoming more casual. Um, I mean, I worked at the American bar for four years, and despite the fact that it looks like a very stiff bar from the outside, it's actually very casual in the way that people interact with mm. each other at the bar. Still a bar, right? Mm. And but also restaurants are becoming more and more casual. You know, mm. I think fine dining is getting very, very casual. I was sitting at the at the restaurant here uh, in Melbourne, and I was sitting at the counter where the where the kitchen is. And the chef was like chit-chatting to me and like, you know, giving me stuff to try. And I thought, that's a bartender's yeah. chat, is it? Yeah, you know? Yeah. No, in recent years, that's changed a lot in the chef side of things. You can't be a chef anymore these days and just be in the back cooking and not yeah, talk exactly. to people, you know. <laughs> you have to be it's a multifaceted job you have to be you know good with people you have to be able to you know especially these days you know you've got shows like master chef you have to you know speak well in front of a group and you know it's 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 quite a challenging job you have to wear many hats so to speak but i i feel like just as much as bartenders can learn from chefs quite a lot i think you know chefs are, are, are learning a lot from bartenders as well you know especially you know i look at uh, the japanese sushi chef as like the ultimate chef because they're basically a chef and a bartender at the same time they're in front of you at the counter there's nowhere to hide you know they have to and and you know quite often the japanese style is to be very uh what's the word not stern but like quite reserved and uh-huh. not saying much or whatever but uh you know quite often it's it, it can be an amazing experience uh, aki's father is a sushi chef here in melbourne and it's amazing sitting there having sushi made from him because he's right there you know it's not like he's making it in the back and you never see him um and i always thought that was a very strong uh similarity between bartenders and and sushi chefs it's, it's very similar Let's talk a little bit about Birdie. So first of all, you must be quite excited to be back here in Australia, right? Yeah, uh, it's a, yeah, it's amazing. It's it's become home for me now, and especially now, just having you know our first child, it's really something that's kind of like well, it's me kind of settling down and choosing a place that it's like okay, this is where I'm going to be. Talk to us a little bit about the concept of Birdie. Yep, so it's quite a simple one actually. Um, so the name Birdie comes from. Um, just like a bird will adapt to its environment and naturally evolve if it flies to a new location it will evolve to that location and start you know maybe its diet might change or it will develop over over the course of many years it will develop you know claws or, or webbed feet to swim or you know it will just adapt to its environment so that was kind of what I want to do in terms of uh, myself and and the bar I want it to be always evolving and always adapting um and i want it to be telling a story of the place that we're in um like we were saying earlier australia and and also victoria and melbourne is, is such an amazing place for so many reasons but the main one is it's so seasonal and you've got such a huge exposure of so many different products produce wise and and it's not even just like indigenous things there's like things now in victoria that are being grown like there's some amazing yuzu being grown here I'm getting some really amazing vanilla beans and coffee from northern Queensland as well. Oh. Um so there's a lot of stuff that people don't necessarily think that are grown in Australia and we we've been growing it in recent years and it and it's really really a uh, a high quality because we've got such a, a diverse climate here. So yeah, I, I want to really showcase that. And so one sort of passion of mine is well food and drink is a passion of mine obviously um but traveling and so whenever i travel i want to taste whatever is local 
Um, Earlier this year, I went to Italy for the first time, and I remember I landed in the airport, and we were sitting there waiting for Denzel Heath uh, from Muti to arrive because we were there for uh, like an Italian bar show. We're sitting in the airport uh, waiting for Denzel to arrive, and uh, Shane Eaton was the guy that brought us over for that. And he said, okay, while we're waiting here, let me go get you a beer. And uh, I was like, yeah, cool, no worries. And I didn't even think. And he went off to the lounge or whatever to get a beer, and he, he brings back like a, I think it was a Pilsner Urkel or <laughs> it was a Czech beer or something. Yeah. And I was like, what's this? Where's the Peroni? Like, I'm in Italy. I don't, I don't want a Czech beer. You know, so that, I mean, I was just joking around. I think he eventually did get a Peroni. <laughs> oh, no way. Oh, and actually, yeah, that's right. He <laughs> went, no, but he went and got a Peroni <laughs> and the Peroni came back and it was warm. He's like, oh, no, let me take it back. It's warm. I said, no, no, no. In Italy, I'd rather drink a warm Peroni than a cold course, to beer from Czech. Because I think it's just... Uh, traveling, that's the beauty of traveling, right? You get to taste new things and uh, it always tastes better from the place it, it is. For some reason it does, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I want to I focus on what, what is good about Melbourne, you know, what is and, – and I want to create an experience. So, especially for people, you know, if they're coming from London or wherever and they're coming all the way down to Melbourne, I want to give them an experience that they can't get anywhere else in the world and they're going to go home and go, oh, my God, like – I have to go all the way back there to get that, you know. That to me is special. Um, it came from a very early experience having uh, a meal at uh, a restaurant called Favican. The chef there is Magnus Nielsen. He's like one of my idols. Uh, he's He does some amazing things. But I went to Sweden. I basically had this meal and it changed my whole perspective on things. Um, basically, he, he only uses produce that's grown on his like, property he'll maybe only use uh things that he hunts for within like a five kilometer radius and that sort of thing and there's it was the first real time i actually appreciated or got a sense of terroir and, and provenance and it really affected me a lot and it's something with singapore that i've been that i've been wanting to do for a while and it kind of frustrated me for a little bit that you know i couldn't do as much as i could like we use some local honeys and that sort of thing in singapore but in terms of doing it across the board, um, it's, it's quite a challenge. So to coming back to Melbourne and just being having all this local stuff is, is amazing. And so, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. How big is the bar going to be? So we're, uh, I mean, space-wise, we're 125 square meters, but for, for people that can't really convert that in their heads, I know I can't, we're going to be 60 seats. Okay. Um, and we're, we're going to have one uh, bar uh, and kitchen that sort of uh, serves the majority of the bar area. And then we're going to have one, we're calling it the Avery, um, Birdie Avery, um, <laughs> which is basically a glassed off section um, with another bar in there that will mainly serve as like our lab. Um, but we'll do little tasting events in there as well. Like a private dining room, sort of speak. Sort of, yeah, yeah. So we'll do like chef collaborations and that sort of thing in there. But majority of the time it will operate as our lab where we're sort of uh, developing new drinks. Will you be serving food? Yeah, yeah. We'll have uh, quite a strong food focus. Um, just with the produce that we can get, it just makes sense. Uh, I think especially in Melbourne. Melbourne is a, a very much a food city. You can't really get away with opening a bar without having a decent food offering be a short menu of probably about 10 food items um, predominantly will be plant-based uh, and we'll probably only have maybe two protein uh, maybe three max so we'll have like one seafood dish and one meat dish um, 
but when we have that seafood or, or meat it'll be a very strong focus of knowing where it's from it'll be from a very small producer and working very closely with a farmer because um, we want to have that sort of sustainability angle as well um, and we also i like the idea of you know introducing bar snacks or food that goes with drinks it doesn't always have to be fried chicken you know yeah it i can, agree absolutely it can be vegetable uh, based and still really delicious but uh, the main focus will of course be cocktails and when it comes to the cocktails uh, is it uh, still going to be 100 focused on what you can source from around yourself yeah, like the bar yeah yeah uh it'll be yeah focusing on the seasons what we can get and we'll we'll, we'll use a lot of uh preservation techniques so at the moment um there's like lily pilly that's just starting to grow lily pilly it's also known as rye berry in australia so it's a little little pink berry that grows um specifically in australia and it's kind of got the texture of like a pear but it's almost like a bitter sweet sort of flavor as well that's starting to grow at the moment so uh, we've been picking that and, and pickling and preserving or drying so even though we will be a very strong seasonal focus quite often we'll have a drink that will be uh serving last year's lily pilly uh-huh. with this year's jasmine or something like that um so it's kind of i guess i, I want to sort of focus or, or ed- show people that you know even though we're focusing on the seasons there's a lot of techniques that you can focus on preserving these ingredients as well i think it's a quite cool thing because if i look back at for instance my uh granddad and grandma uh, mm. they literally lived uh, with whatever they could get from around themselves mm. and there was a lot of preserving involved right yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's i mean it's just it's smart right like use these things all year round making jam is like a great example you know so when you have the fresh fruit you know eating the fresh fruit there's nothing better but to be able to preserve it so you can use it all year round you know to make it into a jam or a preserve is it makes perfect sense yeah especially with bartending too like alcohol is an is like an obvious preservative you know you can preserve a lot of things in alcohol um so using not only those techniques but pickling and and that sort of thing is uh It's, it's a lot of fun because you can get a lot of different flavor profiles out of the same ingredient. Uh, there's one one drink that we're going to be putting on and it's basically just focusing on the one ingredient and that's pears. So when we have fresh pears, we're going to be pears. fermenting them. Oh, they're amazing. Oh. Um, but we're also using the same ingredient but a whole different, a whole heap of different ways. So we'll be using the fresh pear juice but then we'll also be fermenting it which obviously changes the flavor and the complexity of it. Then we'll also be smoking the pears and distilling the pears as well and pickling the pears. And all those techniques will be rolled into one drink. So it's basically one ingredient, but the the flavors are really diverse. So kind of getting people to think a little bit more uh, when they're thinking about drinks, thinking more produce related rather than focusing on what spirit it is, whether it's rum or whiskey or whatever. Speaking of uh, spirits, uh, are you planning to focus on local spirits or do you think you'll have some sort of international selection? No, it'll just be 100% local. Yeah. Okay. So, for instance, we won't have tequila in the bar. Um, it just doesn't really make sense for us to be focusing on, on so many local things and then, you know, pour and then make you a, a, a Tommy's margarita, <laughs> even if it is with, you know, local limes. I think that's, for me, that would, for me personally, that would be like, me only going halfway i, w- I want to go all the way with this so yeah we're, we're working and it's it can be a challenge but it's actually been really exciting working with a lot of local producers um 
We're working with uh, a local uh, vermouth company called Made in I Vermouth. Um, so we're developing a seasonal expression with them. So we'll change the vermouth every season. Um, so the vermouth that we're going to be opening with, we're developing now, but it'll be very sort of more fruit driven. Um, there's a big focus on using uh, an ingredient called strawberry gum leaf, which is a, a type of eucalypt, but it's quite fruity. And we're, de- we're creating this vermouth to be enjoyed like with a tonic or a soda in a highball. But then when uh, summer comes along, we'll develop the vermouth in, and change the flavor profile. We're doing a similar thing with a gin with a local dis- well, a distiller from South Australia called Applewood. Um, and so the gin that we're op- hoping to open with will be a smoked Davidson plum old Tom gin. Um, and so then we'll open with that the first three months and we'll also sell that retail as well for people that, you know, if they like the, mm-hmm. the gin, they can take a bottle home. So if they're coming from London or wherever, they can take a, a little slice of birdie with them. Uh, and then we'll change it all the time. So it'll become like a limited release sort of thing. So th- that's been really cool for me to be able to work with different people on these things and uh, even down to like working with local ceramic artists to, to make ceramics for us. It's cool. It works both ways. You know, I'm excited and, and love working with these people and, you know, you can see that they're enjoying it as well. We had this uh, Japanese chef, uh, his name is Endo-san, and uh, he opened, he was the first executive chef of Zuma actually. Oh. And now he's opening his own restaurant. Then for a short period of time, uh, when I was still be- uh, back in London, he had a pop-up in the hotel where I worked for like a month or so. So for the first three days of the week, he would go fishing and then we bring that fish back to the hotel and cook for like the three days, one day off, repeat, right? Amazing. And one of the cool things that he told me is that all his china where was uh, made in Japan by a local ceramic guy, right? Yeah. And he never gave this guy any brief. He said, whatever you feel like doing it, doing do it and then ship it over to me and then it was showing me some of the things that he received like a huge very weirdly shaped bowl and it's like <laughs> what do you use that for and it's like i have no idea you know that's actually yeah like that's um it's funny you say that like a lot of the stuff that i've done in the past and especially like if i use operation dagger for an example i think in the process in terms of collaborating or you know outsourcing someone to make something for us let's say ceramic i think i was in the past i was very controlling of that process and i wanted it to look a certain way or that sort of thing with birdie i've actually had the complete different mentality and it's basically been the same process of okay this is what i want to do just go you do it, it. Yeah. just go for uh-huh. it you know especially with these guys you know applewood they're they make amazing uh, products uh, on their own I just sort of, you know, float an idea by by them and say, but, you know, you just do it. You, you know, you, you know, I, I obviously the the one prerequisite that I would like to have is that I just want to be involved in the process somehow. But I think if you're a bit too controlling, you restrict someone else's creativity. So it's it's really cool, and I mean sometimes it's a bit of a risk because you don't know what's <laughs> going to be made. But uh, I think if you choose the right people, then the quality is going to be there anyway. But um, um, even just down to like the design of uh, the concept of the name of Birdie and everything, we talked to friends of ours um, who are local designers here in Melbourne called Drooly Noted. And we just said, okay, here's the concept. We want to do local things. We want to adapt to our environment. Go. And they just came up with the whole thing. Of, oh, that's you know, awesome. And, and it, was, it was really cool. Like, and it was, I think now 
with that mentality, it enables Birdie to grow into something that I couldn't just do by myself. You know, myself and Aki doing it, we would only go down one road, whereas by opening it up to other people, it then evolves into something greater than we couldn't do on our own. So, Have you had, the, have you had any challenges coming back here, like in terms of adjusting? Or do you think that your uh, service style will have to adjust to the local market? Or do you think it's a bit copy-paste? Uh... Well, it remains to be seen. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> we'll wait and I see when we open. Yeah, yeah. One, yeah. <laughs> it comes up to me in a few months. I'll be like, oh, dude, I'm really struggling. <laughs> no, I think uh, I think it's a good time for me to come back to Melbourne. Um, Melbourne's a great, great city, and especially for food and drink. However, I think for a little while in terms of bars, and uh, you know, people might disagree with me, but from my perspective in terms of uh, cocktail bars, there's probably been probably too many of the same style of bars opening. It's not not to say that they're not great bars, but I think it's like it's the same thing over and over again, just yeah. getting rehashed and it becomes a little bit stagnant. You know, don't get me wrong, the quality is still there, but it's not, you know, introducing anything new. And so that's what's perfect for me coming in and, and having such a different approach and, and a different concept is, you know, it allows me to do my own thing you know, and not feel the pressure of five or six other bars doing the same thing. If I was to come back and open like a very classic orientated cocktail bar, there'd be a huge amount of pressure because there's so many other bars doing it really well. You know, a case in point is like a bar uh, called the Everly in Melbourne. It's an amazing bar. They make some amazing drinks. And like, why would I compete with that? You know, yeah. it doesn't make sense. Mm. Pick your fights, um, right? Yeah. So it's, it's it's great, you know, for me to come in. I, I feel like it's going to be great for me, but it's also we're going to be able to offer something to Melbourne and contribute to the scene uh, as a whole, which is great. Um, in terms of, like I say, in terms of like service and that sort of thing, it probably remains to be seen. But uh, I don't know. I think we're, we're going to have a very kind of similar approach to a lot of the, the restaurants and wine bars in Melbourne. And that's, you know, having a very strong quality, uh, high quality product, but with a relaxed style and a relaxed service. Yeah, the, the, I, the main thing with Birdie is I want it to become like a second home for, for my family. Um, I want it to be the place where my son can come and it's, you know, extension of his own home. So that will influence the style of bar that we're going to be. You know, it's it's not the sort of bar that we're going to be encouraging shots and, you know, late night, you know, just getting wasted. You know, that's that's not my interest. We're going to be open from 10 a.m. actually, you know, serving coffee and that sort of thing oh, as no well. Way, no. So it's, it's actually the staff, the people that I'm, uh, that we're attracting that want to work for us. You can see that they want to work for us for the right reasons as well, you know. Uh, maybe there's you know they've been working in in bars till 5 a.m for so long that they just want something different they want something a little bit more wholesome and something that they can sort of dig their teeth into and learn a little bit more and um, with our approach of our focus being on the produce more on the seasons and that sort of thing um, it's not just about getting people drunk you mentioned uh, that when you open operation dagger you were there pretty much every day you open two bars simultaneously you mentioned that you need to be on your emails and things like that. Mm. What is it that you do to unwind? What is it that helps you say, you know, sort of drop the mic and take your own time? Um, if I if I if I could choose what I would ultimately do to unwind, it would be to go for a surf. Um, uh-huh. I don't get to do that very often these <laughs> days. It's something that I'm working on that I really want to try and get back to. That was a huge part of me growing up was uh, 
uh, surfing. I grew up on the ocean, so it was a huge part of my life. My childhood friends are still my best friends now, and, and I met them because of surfing. Um, I have a very tight-knit group of friends that they're not even in the industry as well. So it's really cool for me when I go back to my hometown, I can just focus on hanging out with mates and going surfing. There's nothing industry-related you know, at all. Um, so that would be my ultimate. That's when I'm really, you know, off, off duty, but on a day-to-day basis, you know, just simple things like, uh, I mean, at the moment, just spending time with my son is like the ultimate. It's really cool. Even if it's just an hour before I, I head out during the day and then maybe at night, you know, just he's in, he's only just turned one. So he's in a really cool period of his life. Now we watch like, uh, this morning I turned on like David Attenborough, the is it Planet Earth? Planet Earth yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he's like sitting there watching the the fish and that. <laughs> yeah. Ends. But yeah, that's that's cool for me. And then just spending time with Aki, you know, just uh, like, cooking at home, bottle of wine is great. Uh, I love being outdoors, that sort uh-huh. of thing. So yeah, I, I tend not to go to so many bars these days because I, I find it, even though I enjoy it, it's kind of I can't. I find it hard to switch off. You know, even if I'm at, at a bar or a restaurant and I'm enjoying it, it's still work for me because I'm I know, kind of right? like yeah. constantly, I find it hard to switch my mind off. So when I'm trying to relax, I try and remove myself from, from anything bar or drinks related. So tell us a little bit. You've got two people that I think uh, are very, I wouldn't say similar, but, you know, like very relevant to what you do, which are uh, Alex and Matt. Mm. How, what kind of relationship do you have with them and how do you make sure that your concepts and drinks don't clash with each other? Um, well, I think, first of all, I, I'm, I'm super grateful to be able to call the two of those mates. Like, uh, not only are they good, like good friends and they're, yeah, they're just good mates, but uh, they just so happen to be two of the most influential guys <laughs> in, in my chosen industry. So, um, in terms of uh, clashing, probably Matt and I, you know, our stuff clashes a little more. <laughs> I mean, often. he just moved to Australia, yeah. for God's sake. Yeah, he did. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, no, we're always having a laugh and, you know, taking the piss out of each other. It's like, oh, yeah. No, I was in Sydney uh, two weeks ago. No, I went to Scout, had an amazing time, really cool drinks. And uh, there's a couple of drinks he he brought out, basically the the whole menu because we had like an hour before we went to dinner together. And Aki and I had Bronson and I was driving so I couldn't really drink so much. So he basically brought out the whole menu and I had like tastes of everything. I felt, oh, that's cool. I, I, well, it was cool, but I felt bad for the, for the bartenders there. They're making all these drinks that I take <laughs> one sip off and then give back. So I, I hope they know that I enjoyed it. And I, I'm yeah. sure they do. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was a drink that came out, and you know, Matt makes a comment. It's like, "Oh yeah, this is the one that you copied me on." <laughs> and there's always there's always comments like that. It's it's all in good good humor. Um, I think you know, I I mean, those guys are a constant inspiration to me. Um, I'd I'd be I'd feel very honored if they if they said that I was an inspiration to them. Um, but you know, I think we we all focus on different things. Yeah, I don't know. I've I've learned a lot from not only Matt but Alex, but n- not so much. Uh, not always just about drinks. You know, I think it was you know a couple of years ago when I started doing a lot more uh, trips around to do you know guest shifts or you know doing a, a seminar and that sort of thing. I didn't really. I was a bit lost in terms of 
I didn't really know how to approach that on the business side of things to make it worth my while because I started thinking, you know, I'm getting offers to do a lot of these trips and that sort of thing. But in all honesty, if I if I did a trip to London, I would have to take time from my business and, you know, financially it was it was tough, you know. So I had to try and make, make it worth my while without, you know, I didn't want to come across as too arrogant and be like, okay, you can pay me 10000 whatever, whatever a day, yeah. you know, because, and I was, I, I didn't know how to price it because, you know, you don't get taught that, you know, no, no one says, okay, this is how much the going rate is. <laughs> so obviously, you know, Alex was the first person I, I sung out to and I said, I, I said, oh, what should I be telling people, you know, what do you think? And, you know, he put it very simply um, and in a, in a really cool way for me to understand. And it was, you know, and then. Um, I followed his advice and I, and I have for, for years now and it's it's really helped me. So yeah, being friends with a guy with a guy like Alex has helped me in, in more ways than one. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm forever in debt to, to both those guys. They've been very good to me. Um, Alex also like was a very positive influence on the success of Operation Dagger. You know, we we were doing okay and you know there was people appreciating what we did. But I remember a very distinct change when Alex came and had some drinks, and you know I think he mentioned in an article or something that you know he really enjoyed it and it was the best drinks he tried in a, a long time. And mm-hmm. Instantly overnight, we were busy. You know, a guy like Alex has that effect on on the industry, on businesses, right? yeah. on, on businesses. So I'm forever grateful for that. So, how did you guys come up with the like-minded creatures uh, program? I guess it, it came about Matt and Alex were two guys that I really wanted to thank them for for helping me out over the years. So we for Operation Dagger, we had never had any guest shifts. We had never had anyone from the outside in to the bar. We'd always focused on our own thing. And it wasn't because that we you know didn't want other people in. It was just because we were doing something so different for Singapore, we wanted to introduce that to Singapore. We didn't want to confuse things by, you know, four days a week, this is us. And then one day of the week, we had someone visiting, coming in, making different drinks. And I find that sometimes quite difficult unless you've got a designated space that's separate to the bar that you can do a guest shift but still offer your same core menu. It's quite confusing for the guest. It is. Um, And especially when you've got, you know, who knows, you might have someone from the other side of the world that's come and they're only in in the city for one night. It's the one night that they can come and see you and they can't get your drinks because you've got a guest shift. You know, I think business-wise, it doesn't make sense. So I didn't do that for a long time. And then Singapore Cocktail Week, we decided, okay, on a Monday night that we're normally closed, let's open up and have this like party. So it was just me, Alex and Matt. And um, I was like, okay, well, what am I going to call it? And... I don't know how it was just like uh, you know we're we're all quite similar we're we're different creatures in our in our own right but we're 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 like minded you know there's a lot of the same processes when the three of us are together we're all talking about the same sort of thing and it and it's really cool so yeah like minded creatures made sense and, and not to mention like uh, Matt has this alter ego of the talented Mister Fox my nickname's Wookie. For mm-hmm. obvious reasons, and uh, and then <laughs> Alex is the the panda, right? So uh, it was kind of we were all creatures, in, and and yeah, it just happened like that. It's very cool. Uh, last question I asked to everyone before we close it: uh, What would be your last drink if you could choose it? My last drink, <sighs> probably a glass of water. I can never get enough. <laughs> 
It's probably a bit boring, but uh, yeah, I can never get enough water. I'm, always, I know, right? I'm like a fish. I think growing up by the ocean, I say this to Aki all the time, I feel like sometimes I'm drying up unless I've been in the ocean. Uh, and it's, yeah, I'm constantly at home just like drinking water. Uh, there you have it. <laughs> nice and simple. Thank you very much for your time. It was awesome talking to you. Thanks for having me, man. Thank Cheers. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Luke. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.